0: Hey there, this is Devin from Legal Eagle. You're smart, and I know that you're smart because you're listening to this podcast. But if you want even more incredible, educational-ish content from me and my friends, then you've got to get Nebula. Because in addition to offering tons of terrific podcasts ad-free, Nebula is a place where my friends and I get to release tons of experimental and exclusive content that you can't find anywhere else. Plus, all of my videos are ad-free. Just head to watchnebula.com slash Legal Eagle Radio to sign up now. Just before the new year, British socialite and Jeffrey Epstein paramour Ghislaine Maxwell was convicted of sex trafficking of a minor, transporting a minor with the intent to engage in criminal sexual activity, conspiracy to entice a minor to travel for the purpose of engaging in illegal sex acts, and conspiracy to transport a minor with the intent to engage in criminal sexual activity. The Maxwell trial was a bonanza for conspiracy theorists because the characters include some of the most famous people in the world. A victim said that she was recruited by Epstein when she worked as a 15 year old at Donald Trump's Florida resort, Mar-a-Lago. One of the prosecutors was Maureen Comey, daughter of James Comey. Super lawyer, Alan Dershowitz helped Epstein to get a plea deal for abusing young girls and then was accused of participating in the sexual abuse of two girls in Epstein's orbit. Friend of Jeffrey Prince Andrew partied with Epstein at Mar-a-Lago and is in the midst of a legal battle with a woman who says Andrew and Epstein abused her. Bill Clinton admitted to flying with Jeffrey Epstein four times. Donald Trump that he fell out with Epstein but complimented Maxwell saying, I wish her well. I just wish her well, frankly. And of course, Epstein and Maxwell are known to be in the orbit of many famous Democrats and Republicans. And then of course, there's Epstein himself who killed himself in prison before he could be tried in court, launching speculation that he was murdered at the behest of the Clintons or by then President Trump or by the CIA or some other shadowy cabal. But all of these famous names and outlandish theories tend to diminish what the victims say actually happened to them, that they were sexually abused by Epstein and aided and abetted by Maxwell. Maxwell when they were minors. So in this video, we'll explain what really happened in the Maxwell trial. What did the victims say about Epstein and Maxwell? How many years could she face in prison and what happens next? And most importantly, why could one juror undo the entire trial? So let's start at the beginning. Who is Ghislaine Maxwell? Maxwell is a French-born Oxford educated socialite. She is the daughter of Robert Maxwell who escaped Nazi persecution in what was then Czechoslovakia on the eve of World War II. Robert emigrated to France and then to Great Britain where he eventually became a member of parliament for six years. Ghislaine is the youngest of nine children. In 1991, her father drowned on a yacht named the Lady Ghislaine after his beloved daughter. By the end of his life, Robert was a media tycoon who owned several newspapers and publishing companies. After his death, the world learned that Robert had been laundering pension funds and embezzling money. But despite the scandal, Ghislaine Maxwell's family connections enabled her to form relationships with rich and famous people from around the world, which she leveraged when she met Epstein in the early 1990s. Epstein was an incredibly wealthy man, though it seems that nobody knows precisely how he made his money or how much he made. Epstein was briefly a professor, hired by the father of former attorney general, William Barr. Later, he became a trader for Bear Stearns, uh, where he was made partner in just four years. After leaving Stearns, Epstein went into business for himself. Most of Epstein's acquaintances have said that Epstein was a money manager who only accepted clients who had $1 billion or more. Epstein eventually purchased a private island and had two jets, which he used to entertain friends. He also became a philanthropist, allegedly giving away hundreds of millions of dollars to charitable causes. But in reality, it seems that the Epstein Foundation turned out to be a mirage to gain tax exemptions and rehabilitate his image after his 2005 Florida sex abuse case. In 2005, the police investigated the financier for abusing underage girls. One of the accusers told the Miami Herald that he was preying on 14-year-old girls who were, quote, basically homeless. At the time, Epstein called on Alan Dershowitz, who attacked the accuser's character and negotiated a non Prosecution agreement that allowed Epstein to plead guilty to one count of solicitation with no additional charges. He served 13 months in a county jail on work release. As longtime legal eagles know, the prosecutor who negotiated the deal was Alex Acosta, who later became the Secretary of Labor for Donald Trump. And Acosta resigned after criticism of the deal. You can watch my video about Epstein and Acosta for more information. It is, uh, to put it mildly, Bonkers. Now, some have suggested that Epstein also made money by blackmailing his rich and famous friends. When the FBI raided his properties, they found hundreds and perhaps thousands of sexually suggestive photographs of nude females. The FBI also seized compact discs that were labeled with the words young, blank name, plus name. Virginia Roberts-Dufresne publicly accused Epstein and Britain's Prince Andrew of sexual abuse. She says American law enforcement have video footage of her having sex with members of Epstein's elite friend group. Now, all this indicates that authorities have significant information about Epstein's activities and they know that he broke the law. But in 2019, Epstein committed suicide in jail. But despite years of accusations that Maxwell participated in the abuse, she managed to stay on the lam for years until she was arrested at home in New Hampshire in 2021. Federal prosecution Alison Moe called her, quote, a sophisticated predator and the key to Epstein's criminal abuse of girls, which takes us to the trial of Ghislaine Maxwell. Maxwell stood trial on six charges of committing sex crimes against minors. The crimes happened between 1994 and 2004. And we do know that Epstein had a history of abusing underage girls, often during encounters that started with a girl giving Epstein a massage. Epstein promised girls to help with their personal problems, pledged to fund their educations, and made them believe that he would help them launch their careers in music massage or any area where the girl expressed interest. The Epstein encounters happened at his properties all over the world. Four victims testified during this trial, helping prosecutors to show a pattern of abuse. So what was Maxwell's alleged role in this? Well, federal prosecutors said that she actively groomed underage girls and then brought them into Epstein's household. The victims testified that Maxwell facilitated the abuse of underage girls. She gained their trust by taking them shopping, inviting them to luxurious estates and on expensive trips, all the while making it seem like they were safe. But then she basically asked acted like a madam and an accomplice luring the girls into sexual encounters with Epstein and Maxwell herself. The prosecution showed that during this time frame, Epstein transferred over $30 million to Maxwell. So how did Epstein and Maxwell coerce girls into traveling with them? Well, witnesses said that they pretended that they were mentoring the girls. One witness testified that Epstein paid for her to attend a performing arts camp. Another witness said that Epstein funded her travels under the guise of helping her improve her college prospects. Prosecutors told the jury that the evidence would prove that all of these activities were just subtext for grooming the girls for sex sexual abuse. The prosecution's expert witness, Lisa Rakio, who was a therapist, claimed that the predator's selective vulnerable victims, isolate them from friends and family, earn their trust with money and gifts, and then begin the abuse. One of the victims said that she was in a vulnerable position when she met Epstein. Her father had died and Epstein promised to fund her college education. The woman who testified said that Maxwell first presented herself as a wise older sister, but then started casually mentioning how they should touch Epstein during a massage. Their accounts of the abuse were supported by people who worked for Epstein. Juan Alessa, a former housekeeper in Palm Beach, said he was asked to drive Maxwell around to the massage parlors and spas in the local area looking for girls that they could recruit. David Rogers flew Epstein for over 30 years. He kept a meticulous personal flight log of the more than 1,000 times he flew one of Epstein's private planes. A redacted version of the flight logs was entered into evidence. And these heavily redacted flight logs were pretty damning. The logs showed that Epstein and other passengers flew with some of the victims from 1996 to 1998, confirming one of the victim's stories. The flight logs also confirmed that Epstein's accuser, Virginia Giuffre, had indeed flown on the airplane with Epstein. Jeffrey has accused Prince Andrew of sexually abusing her when she was 17 years old. Prince Andrew, for his part, admits hanging out with Epstein, but denies the allegations. Lawrence Visosky, one of Epstein's pilots, said he never witnessed sexual activity on the planes. However, he also said that the cockpit door was always kept closed during flights on the plane nicknamed the Lolita Express. Now, the most serious charge against Maxwell was for sex trafficking a minor. The indictment said that Maxwell, quote, assisted, facilitated, and contributed to Jeffrey Epstein's abuse of minor girls by, among other things, helping Epstein to recruit, groom, and ultimately abuse victims known to Maxwell and Epstein to be under the age of 18. Now, sex trafficking is covered by 18 U.S.C. 1591, and it applies to anyone who knowingly recruits, entices, harbors, transports, provides, or obtains by any means a person, knowing that the person has not attained the age of 18 years and will be caused to engage in a commercial sex act. Now, this charge relates solely to Maxwell's actions towards victim Carolyn, who was abused by Epstein when she was in her teens. Carolyn, who withheld her last Last name told the jury that when she was 14, she was sexually abused by Maxwell and Epstein. She testified about uh, setting up a massage room for Epstein when Maxwell came into the room and touched Carolyn's body. Carolyn estimates that she visited Epstein's Florida house over 100 times between 2001 and 2004, and each time she visited, $300 in cash was left for her on the bathroom sink. For sex trafficking minor, Maxwell faces up to 40 years of imprisonment as a first time offender. The jury also found Maxwell guilty of enticing a minor to travel and transporting a minor across state lines. Federal criminal law prohibits a wide range of activities relating to transporting people and traveling across state lines or internationally for the purpose of engaging in legal sexual conduct. Uh, 18 U.S.C. 2422 prohibits anyone from knowingly persuading, inducing, enticing, or coercing an individual to travel in interstate or foreign commerce with for the purpose of engaging in prostitution or any criminal activity or attempting to do so. Victim Jane, who testified under an assumed name, said that when she was 14 years old, Maxwell and Epstein approached her at an arts camp in Michigan. This was the beginning of several years of abuse, which happened at Epstein's Palm Beach mansion. Jane testified that she was forced to give Epstein a massage that he turned sexual. And she testified that Maxwell was often in the room during that abuse. Jane said that Maxwell gained her trust and made her feel like she was an older sister, which paved the way for the abuse. The abuse occurred when Jane was 14, 15, and 16 years old. Now, the jury acquitted Maxwell of an enticing charge, but convicted her for transporting Jane when she was a minor. And since Jane was then under 18, the penalty is up to 15 years in jail. Now, Maxwell was found guilty of three charges of conspiracy related to the charges that we just talked about. Conspiracy to commit uh, sex trafficking of a minor, conspiracy to entice a minor to travel to engage in criminal sexual activity, and conspiracy to transport a minor with the intent to engage in criminal sexual activity. Prosecutors charged Maxwell with conspiracy charges for agreeing to do these crimes, which was paired with the substantive charges for committing those specific crimes. Now, to convict someone of conspiracy, the prosecutor simply has to prove that the defendant committed overt acts in furtherance of the conspiracy. And remember, a conspiracy charge is sort of an empty vessel. It requires a predicate illegal conduct for which multiple people are agreeing or helping out with. And here, the prosecution laid out a criminal conspiracy between Maxwell and Epstein to abuse minor girls, often by transporting them to Epstein's house in New York, Florida, New Mexico, and England. Maxwell encouraged underage girls to participate in these massages with Epstein while they were in England, all the while knowing that the girls would be sexually abused during the massages. Maxwell was also charged with enticing a female victim to travel from Florida to New York in order to facilitate sex acts with Epstein. Now, Maxwell's defense was that she was just an innocent bystander who did not participate in the abuse of the victims. Maxwell argued that the victims had been manipulated by their lawyers. And she also argued that Epstein manipulated Maxwell using the same tactics that he used on the girls. And the defense attorneys challenged the memories of the four victims who testified. There were some discrepancies in the victim's recollections about what happened, but generally speaking, they'd seem to be pretty minor details. And the jury clearly believed that while the victims might've gotten some of the more minor details wrong, dealing with events that took place almost 20 years ago, that uh, they believe the more important facts that Epstein abused underage girls and that Maxwell facilitated that abuse. That's not surprising given the pilot logs establishing that the girls traveled with Epstein and Maxwell coupled with their testimony about how Maxwell groomed them, which damaged Maxwell's defense. And I guess the jury didn't believe that Maxwell was an innocent bystander. Now the maximum penalty on all five counts for Maxwell is 65 years, but the guidelines usually recommend lower sentences for first time offenders. And uh, the maximum penalty rarely tells you anything about the uh, sentence that a defendant will actually serve. Federal sentences are almost always adjusted depending on whether there was aggravating factors or mitigating factors. And these adjustments are found in the federal sentencing guidelines. And it's likely Maxwell won't face anything like 65 years in jail, though she will definitely be in jail for quite a long time. Now, when weighing Maxwell's sentence, the judge will have to consider the size and scope of the criminal activity and the person's role in it. In the, Maxwell's case, Epstein's two pilots uh, described her as his number two. Epstein's former house manager told the jury that Maxwell described herself as the lady of the house. Though if the judge finds that she was a manager or supervisor, but not an organizer or leader, then her exposure would increase by only three levels. And if she was an organizer, leader, manager, or supervisor in any criminal activity, her guideline score only goes up by two levels. Calculating actual sentences can be a very fact intensive endeavor, and it can be kind of tricky, but federal prosecutors uh, predict that Maxwell's involvement was significant enough to warrant a 20 to 25 year sentence. Now, some people have suggested that Maxwell may look to cooperate with prosecutors to reduce her sentence, but since Epstein is dead and prosecutors regard her as his second in command, it's not clear what she really has to gain or what prosecutors would want with her. And that's not the end of the road for Maxwell's woes. Later this year, she will stand trial on charges that she lied under oath about Epstein's abuse of underage girls. And according to prosecutors, Maxwell perjured herself during a 2016 deposition in the uh, Virginia Giuffre case, where she told lawyers under oath that she did not know about Epstein's abuse of the girls and did not know about recruitment and interactions with underage girls. Though on the other hand, one of the quirks of conspiracy charges is that the statute of limitations doesn't run until the last overt act in the conspiracy has been committed. So even though we're talking about events that took place in the 90s and early 2000s, the conspiracy still continued decades after Initial predicate acts, which means that uh, the other people who engaged in these acts and engaged in this conspiracy can still be found guilty of the conspiracy charges, even though the underlying statute of limitations might have uh, already run. And it's clear that here in the Maxwell trial, Maxwell was engaging in all kinds of overt acts uh, in furtherance of the conspiracy, including trying to cover it up years after the initial acts took place. So it's possible that. other people who might have engaged in some of these actions and engaged in these uh, overt acts and further into the conspiracy might still be able to be brought to justice even though it Uh, were decades after the initial acts. But that's not the end of the story. Just one week after the guilty verdict, two jurors spoke out to the media about their own histories of sexual abuse. Now, why would that be a problem? Well, the jurors revealed that they shared their experiences of sexual abuse during jury deliberations. And one of the jurors, or both of them, may have failed to disclose their history in a jury questionnaire. Their revelations could result in a new trial for Maxwell. The first juror, Scotty David, identified only by his first and middle names, Uh, told two reporters that he talked about his experiences as a victim to assuage doubts that other jurors had about the testimonies of the alleged victims. Quote, I can't remember all the details. There are some things that run together. When I shared that, they were able to sort of come around on, they were able to come around on the memory aspect of the sexual abuse. He had allegedly answered no to the question of whether he'd ever been a victim of such a crime. And the second juror told the New York Times that they also shared a personal experience of sexual abuse that appeared to help shape the jury's discussions. Now, as you probably know, during the jury selection process, which is called voir dire, lawyers have the opportunity to screen jurors for who will hear the case. Lawyers can strike a limited number of potential jurors for no cause whatsoever, which means for any reason, as long as the reason isn't the person's race or gender. These are known as peremptory challenges, but lawyers or the judge can also challenge jurors for cause. Potential jurors are excused for cause when the judge finds that they cannot decide the case impartially. Now, a person's experiences and opinions don't automatically mean that they are unable to perform the duties of a juror. The same is true when someone has a strong partisan opinion. A gun reform advocate would not automatically be disqualified to sit on the Rittenhouse jury, nor would a gun rights advocate. A person who has been sexually abused is not necessarily disqualified to sit on a jury involving sexual assault. The key question is whether a person can set aside their opinions and experiences to decide questions fairly and impartially. So how do judges and lawyers figure out if someone can be impartial? Well, during voir dire, lawyers ask probing questions to prospective jurors and the judge judge does as well. Jurors are required to be truthful in this process. And as long as a prospective juror discloses relevant facts, a judge will usually take their word for it if they say that they can set aside their own feelings in order to render a fair judgment. Now, you may wonder whether people have ever lied to get on a jury. And although this has certainly happened, it's also common for a juror upon examination by the judge to admit that they would have trouble putting aside their personal biases to render a fair verdict, which effectively excuses themselves from the jury. And really, that's what lawyers want conflicted jurors to do. They really don't want a situation where a juror lies about their ability to render a fair verdict. So what's the standard for a fair trial because a juror lied in the voir dire process? Well, the Supreme Court outlined that standard in 1984. Quote, we hold that to obtain a new trial in such a situation, a party must first demonstrate that a juror failed to answer honestly a material question on voir dire, and then further show that a correct response would have provided a valid basis for a challenge for cause. The motives for concealing information may vary, but only those reasons that affect a juror's impartiality can truly be said to affect the fairness of a trial. So that is a two-prong standard. And regarding the first prong, questions are material if they have a natural tendency to influence or are capable of influencing the judge's determination whether a juror can be impartial. Circuit courts are split on whether the Supreme Court's first prong requires some level of intent behind the juror's misstatement or omission. The second circuit, where Maxwell was tried, requires showing that the juror deliberately withheld information. Jurors cannot be faulted for failing to disclose certain information when they were never asked during the course of Wadir to make those kind of disclosures. With respect to the Maxwell case, David told Reuters that he flew through the jury questionnaire and did not recall being asked whether he had been a victim of sexual abuse. David told reporters he would have answered honestly if asked explicitly about that question. Now, regarding the second prong, that requires the defendant to show that if the juror had told the truth, there would have been a valid basis for a challenge strike. The Second Circuit cases hold that the standard is satisfied as long as a reasonable judge made aware of the withheld information would have excused the juror for cause, even if the disqualification was not mandatory. So in this case, would Judge Nathan have concluded under the totality of the circumstances that the two jurors lack the capacity and the will to decide the case based on the evidence? Well, this is a high bar. Jury verdicts are usually overturned only if there is an extreme misconduct by that juror. For example, in the U.S. versus Dalgerdos, uh, five defendants were charged with $7 billion in tax evasion. Juror number one, Catherine Conrad, wrote a letter after the verdict complimenting the government on all their work during the trial. And when the lawyers researched Conrad, they discovered that she was not the stay-at-home mother with a bachelor's degree that she claimed to be in the court forms. Conrad was actually a lawyer who was suspended for chronic alcoholism. She'd been convicted of several crimes, including punching a police officer, stealing a bag of shrimp, and there was a warrant out for her arrest in another state. She lied about being a plaintiff in an ongoing personal injury case, and she described her husband as a reputed mob boss. Conrad was later arrested after she defied a subpoena to testify at the hearing regarding a new trial. She admitted that she lied to make herself more marketable as a juror. And not surprisingly, the uh, the judge vacated those convictions. Now, in the Maxwell case, the pretrial questionnaire asked jurors whether they had ever been sexually abused. Those who answered yes were later questioned by Judge Nathan, the presiding judge, about whether they could be impartial. And Rule 33 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure authorizes a district court to grant a motion for a new trial if the interest of justice so requires. So would the omissions by these jurors have disqualified them from the jury? Well, not necessarily. It all depends on how Judge Nathan assessed their ability to fairly review the evidence. And it's anyone's guess what happens next. Judge Nathan has set a briefing schedule for the motion for a new trial. Uh, They will weigh all of the evidence and all of the statements and omissions of these uh, these jurors. And it's anyone's guess as to whether Judge Nathan will grant a new trial. Here, it's not like Maxwell is going free. If she is successful, and the prosecutors will have to redo the in trial again with a new jury. But it is not at all certain that Maxwell's conviction is going to stand.